Hello and welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moira Lady McLean and I'm joined by Ash Saka. I'm so happy to be here, even if it's because Michael Walker has the lurgy. What a wonderful replacement you are. Oh, I'll try my very best. Coming up later tonight, we spotlight one current crisis in Gaza where the IDF has surrounded a Catholic church. We'll be discussing the scandal around Tory peer Michelle Moan, who has spent today pointing fingers at the Conservative government and finding them pointing right back at her. And you will find out who has been crowned as Dick of the Year. And spoiler alert, it's sadly not me. Missed out narrowly. Let's go to our first story. Three Israeli hostages have been killed in Gaza, and not by Hamas, but by IDF soldiers. Alon Shamriz, Yotam Haim, and Samil Talalka were shot dead in Gaza on Friday. They were killed as they walked shirtless towards IDF forces while carrying white flags and calling out in Hebrew. An IDF official spoke to journalists about the killings under condition of anonymity. CNN reported this. At least one soldier felt threatened and opened fire, killing two of the men immediately. The third was wounded and ran back inside the building. The Israeli unit overheard a cry for help in Hebrew, at which time the brigade commander ordered his troops to stop shooting. However, there was another burst of gunfire. The third hostage died later. I cannot imagine managing to survive for months in hostile conditions, only to be shot by your own military. It's so tragic. Now, the IDF has also said the men had been staying in a building near to where they were shot for, quote, some period of time, and that they'd used leftover food to write signs pleading for help. In response to the killings, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said this, Together with the entire people of Israel, I bow my head in deep sorrow and mourn the fall of three of our dear sons who were taken hostage. This is an unbearable tragedy. The entire state of Israel mourns this evening. My heart goes out to the grieving families in their difficult time. Even on this difficult evening, we will dress our wounds, learn the necessary lessons, and continue with our supreme effort to return all our hostages home safely. The same supreme effort that has literally seen three people shot in cold blood. A large section of the Israeli public is not buying that sentiment from their prime minister, though. Thousands of Israeli protesters were out on the streets on Saturday night calling for the government to do more to get the remaining hostages back. Among them were the families of those still held by Hamas, as well as hostages who were freed during November's humanitarian pause. Raz Ben Ami is one of those who was released, and she told reporters this. Ten days ago, I met with the cabinet. I begged the cabinet, and we were all warned, we all warned that the fighting would likely harm the hostages. Unfortunately, I was right. I survived. If the agreement to release the hostages had been delayed by a week, I might not be here. The hostages are experiencing hell and they are in mortal peril. Every day. Every house is critical. Israel must offer another hostage release deal and get the international community to back it. The IDF has long denied that it fires on Palestinian civilians, but the admission that they killed three of their own citizens, shirtless men, carrying a flag of surrender and speaking Hebrew, reveals just how empty that denial is. So empty that the IDF has released a new video showing its troops being reminded of Warfare 101. Don't target civilians. Killing civilians is not the IDF, says one commander. And yet, around 19,000 Palestinians have been killed by the IDF since October 7th, with nearly 8,000 of those killed just children. Claims are now emerging that the IDF doesn't just do that killing with bullets and bombs. 
This is what's left of parts of the Kamal Adwan Hospital in Betlehem, northern Gaza. It's been under Israeli siege for days, but according to witnesses on Saturday, the IDF stormed the grounds. They used bulldozers to tear down the tents housing displaced people and crushed those inside. One witness told Al Jazeera this. People were buried alive using bulldozers. Who could do that? All those who committed this crime should be brought to justice and taken to the International Criminal Court. Ash, this isn't the first time that bulldozers have been used to kill people in occupied Palestinian territories. But in 2003, when the American Rachel Corrie was crushed by an Israeli bulldozer, there was an international outcry. Here, we're getting a different reaction. Why? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why the reaction is somewhat different amongst the international community. One, Rachel Corrie, of course, was a Westerner. And two, this is happening within the context of Israel's war on Gaza following the October 7th attacks. So it's operating within a context where many of the most powerful nations on earth effectively said to Israel, you've got a carte blanche to do absolutely whatever you want. You have an inalienable right to self-defense. That right to self-defense includes acts which breach international law and the rules of war, like collective punishment of civilians. And Israel has happily taken up America and uh, many European countries, including our own, up on that offer of operating with total impunity. So the fact that we are seeing these atrocities, whether it is a siege on a Catholic church or mowing down people in tents with bulldozers, or even the accidental shooting, which I mean, it wasn't accidental at all. It just so happened to be the targets rather than being Palestinian civilians turned out to be Israeli hostages. Um, This is all a result of that climate of diplomatic and military impunity, which has been offered to Israel. I think there's also one last thing that I'd like to add about the Rachel Corey case. Of course, there was international outcry, but I think this also shows you um, how early on you can sort of see this pattern of quite grotesque crowing and celebration of the loss of innocent life by elements within Israeli society and in particular the army, which is in order to mock Rachel Corey, who uh, was killed by a bulldozer, whose dying words were that uh, her back was broken, that you know she was effectively paralyzed before she died, was to celebrate a Rachel Corey pancake day. And these were images posted on Facebook by members of the IDF. And so I think that tells you a little something about the kind of culture which operates within the IDF. So now when there's an attempt to do PR damage control and saying we're the IDF, we would never shoot at anyone waving a white flag, regardless of whether they were Gazan or Israeli, it's totally for the birds. I mean, this is the, you know, leopards eating faces party declaring loudly in an appalled voice, what? We would never, ever eat anyone's face after we've just eaten three faces who happen to be Israelis rather than Palestinians. The most moral army in the world, isn't it? Uh, As the civilian death toll rises in Gaza, though, it's becoming harder to argue that Israel is following international law. Rishi Sunak has now told journalists this. Israel obviously has a right to defend itself against what was an appalling terrorist attack perpetrated by Hamas. 
but it must do that in accordance with humanitarian law. It's clear that too many civilian lives have been lost and nobody wants to see this conflict go on a day longer than it has to. And that's why we've been consistent, and I made this point in Parliament last week, in calling for a sustainable ceasefire whereby hostages are released, rockets stop being fired into Israel by Hamas, and we continue to get more aid in. Let me be absolutely unequivocal. For those of us who might have short memories, such as British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, he hasn't been consistent in calling for a ceasefire at all. Multiple examples, but here's one. In late October, Rishi Sunak sacked Parliamentary Private Secretary Paul Bristow after he wrote a letter to Sunak demanding a ceasefire. However, we will say it is significant that Sunak now recognises that too many civilian lives have been lost. Um, but those comments from the Prime Minister come in response to an article in The Telegraph from former Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, which reads this. Netanyahu's tactics are weakening Israel. Hamas's jihadist ideology must be defeated, but Israel's methods will only boost that hate-filled creed. Wonder who picked that subhead. In the article, Wallace writes this. Hamas is not interested in a two-state solution. No, it is interested in a religious war with Jews using Palestinians as cannon fodder. So I absolutely defend Israel's right to defend itself. But I also strongly believe in our obligations under the Geneva Conventions and expect all signatories to uphold them. Going after Hamas is legitimate. Obliterating vast swathes of Gaza is not. Using proportionate force is legal, but collective punishment and forced movement of civilians is not. We are entering a dangerous period now where Israel's original legal authority of self-defense is being undermined by its own actions. It is making the mistake of losing its moral authority alongside its legal one. I am sure the shame that Benjamin Netanyahu feels for not foreseeing the October 7th attacks is deep, especially for someone who presented himself as a security hawk and a tough guy. But perhaps that shame is driving him to lose sight of the long term. He goes on. Netanyahu's mistake was to miss the attack in the first place. But if he thinks a killing rage will rectify matters, then he is very wrong. His methods will not solve this problem. In fact, I believe his tactics will fuel the conflict for another 50 years. His actions are radicalising Muslim youth across the globe. When all this is over and the IDF withdraws from what is left of Gaza, there will still be Hamas. All the action will have achieved is the extinction, not of the extremists, but the voice of the moderate Palestinians who do want a two-state solution. Interesting... Uh idea to think that it's only radicalizing Muslim youth across the world. I think many people have seen this as an absolutely radicalizing moment in which Western governments have bottled it on every level and they are disengaged from those parliamentary politics and taking to the streets. Um, also, interestingly, Wallace takes a more hawkish stance than Sunak on the subject of a ceasefire, qualifying his argument with this. Before anyone says I'm calling for a ceasefire with Hamas, I'm not. You can't have a ceasefire with Hamas unless they are prepared to declare one. Even then, they would have to pledge to modify their charter to do so. What I'm saying is Israel needs to stop this crude and indiscriminate method of attack and it needs to combat Hamas differently. I wonder what he means by that. I think there was some uh, suggestion of small urban raids. Um, Ash, Ben Wallace was an extremely popular defence secretary. Is his intervention, now he's a former defence secretary, still significant? I think that it is quite significant. Ben Wallace, of course, was tipped 
as a potential Tory leader, he's now said that he's not going to contest his seat again. And I think that he sees himself as something of an opinion former for right-wingers who operate in that kind of foreign policy space. And so I think you've got to do a little bit of reading between the lines, because Ben Wallace was one of the individuals who was really in favour of a reorientation of Britain's defence and foreign policy away from the Middle East and towards Eastern Europe. So for him, it's all about Russia and it's secondarily, but still fairly important, also about China. Um, And so the idea that when you've got the war in Ukraine going on, you've got this sense of uh, Western security apparatus having to turn away from its absolutely disastrous, adventurous wars in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, that now, because of the scale of devastation in Gaza and Netanyahu's insistence on carrying out the most bloody bombing and shelling campaign uh, in modern times, that you are automatically going to have to turn your attention and split your resources back towards the Middle East. So when he's talking about radicalizing Muslim youth, he's not talking about what you or I might talk about which is political awareness, he's going, okay, what this is going to do is make extremist ideology more prevalent and make terrorist attacks more likely. And whilst sure, it's true that the Palestinian cause has been quite opportunistically wielded by people who are very fundamentalist uh, interpreters of Islam. think that it's kind of harking back to a, a, a war on terror way of understanding Muslims in the diaspora, which is because we th- feel things strongly about what happens to Muslims in other countries that, you know, we're basically fifth columnists and it's going to lead to unrest or even violence in the West. But that is obviously a very right wing paradigm for thinking about this issue. So reading between the lines, while yes, this is some you know, a rebuke to Benjamin Netanyahu. I think that the real reason he's making this intervention is to say the problem with Benjamin Netanyahu is that he's so unrestrained in the way in which he administers violence to the Palestinians that's going to force Britain and America to have its head stuck in the Middle East, potentially dealing with an escalation into regional conflict when it should be focusing on Eastern Europe. Now, Ben Wallace isn't the only Tory encouraging the government to apply pressure to Israel to stop its genocide. Ten Tory MPs have also sent a letter to Foreign Secretary David Cameron saying this. We were dismayed to see the United Kingdom abstain on the resolution calling for a ceasefire in Israel and Gaza at the United Nations General Assembly last week, when most of our allies, such as France, Canada and Australia, had voted in support. We were, however, encouraged by your calls for a sustainable ceasefire by both sides yesterday. The case for a ceasefire seems to us to be unanswerable, with many thousands of civilians dead and injured and close to two million forcibly displaced. Thousands of bodies must surely still lie under the rubble. In particular, the number of women and children who have been killed is profoundly shocking. As you have said yourself, too many Palestinians have died. The signatories to that letter include several former ministers. Also fascinating is 
There is a chance for the UK to redeem itself because there is going to be a new resolution put forward to the Security Council today uh, on a ceasefire. So look out for that later this evening. Now, over on the Labour benches, someone caught wind of the fact that we've got a new phrase and he's moved on from the humanitarian poor. Keir Starmer, formerly very opposed to a ceasefire, has changed his stance too. Perhaps trying to avoid being outflanked. Who knows? Perhaps he just see which way the wind is blowing. Perhaps he found a conscience. Well, the Labour leader told reporters this. I think everybody looking into the hostilities in Gaza is shocked and concerned about the level of um, deaths that we're seeing there, the number of people killed. Obviously, we've still got hostages being held. We've got thousands of Palestinian civilians being killed. We need to get to a sustainable ceasefire um, as quickly as possible. And I think the route to that is to get back to where we were just two weeks ago, where hostilities cease, there's an opening that allows the remaining hostages to be freed, which they must be straight away, allows humanitarian aid to get in, desperately needed, but also is a foot in the door to a process, it'll have to be a political process, uh, to a two-state solution, which in the end is the only way that this is going to be resolved. Just want to say, that is a man who a few weeks ago whipped his party with a three-line whip to make sure they wouldn't support a ceasefire, that they wouldn't call specifically for a ceasefire. And now he's out here, changed his tune, and all it took was the deaths of tens of thousands of people, one child killed every 10 minutes, and the raising of northern Gaza. Cowardice. Ash, Starmer might have changed that tune, but will this all lead, you know, the West deciding that suddenly it is time for a sustainable ceasefire, horrible new branding? Will this lead to any change in Israel's campaign, though? So what really matters here in terms of whether or not there's a ceasefire, I mean, it's not whether or not there's a ceasefire. There will be a ceasefire. What matters is when and under what conditions. The timing of that will be in no small part dictated by what's going on with Israel and the United States. The United States, of course, has a vast amount of leverage over Israel that it chooses not to use in the form of the vast quantities of military aid that it hands over to Israel every single year. Now, the reason why Joe Biden might want to change his stance is, of course, his popularity is plummeting. He's got an election to contest next year. And there has been a huge amount of criticism of his line and his emboldenment of Israel in their ethnic cleansing of Gaza. So that might be the thing which determines when and how there might be a ceasefire. Again, in terms of Keir Starmer, what we're seeing from him is a total lack of integrity, a total lack of political leadership, and a total lack of, um, I mean, you put it right when you called him a coward. He is precisely a coward. Now it's safe to start using the word ceasefire. He's more than happy to do it. But when it really mattered, when it really mattered to break the consensus in Westminster about the full-throated backing, the carte blanche offered to Israel. He went with a sort of mealy-mouthed fudge of humanitarian pause. And look what's happened since then. You haven't seen a de-escalation on Israel's part. In fact, we've seen the kinds of intense bombing campaigns that had been censored on the north now being waged on the south of Gaza as well. And so what, what it seems to me is that Rather than going, oh, well, you know, finally, Keir Starmer has come round to the position of a ceasefire. If he was a political leader 
with backbone, with conviction and a bit of foresight, knowing that there will be a ceasefire in Gaza at some point. The next thing is, well, what, what's going to happen next? Will there be an organized withdrawal from Gaza? I don't think so. I personally don't see the army letting Netanyahu get away with withdrawing to what the borders were before October 7th. Will there be an occupation of Gaza? Will there be a further depopulation of the north into the south? Will there be settlements? All of these things are crucially important. But instead, he's just uttering the same political, you know, vagaries and cliches about, oh, you know, there's a got to be a political process ending with a two-state solution. Netanyahu doesn't fucking want a two-state solution. Sipi Hotavelli said there is absolutely no chance of a two-state solution. And I think if you press Keir Starmer on going, okay, let's see Israel do want to negotiate a two-state solution, would that include Hamas? Would you, would you say that Hamas should be negotiating partners with the PLO in determining the outcome of a two-state solution, he would start sweating from his eyeballs because it's a question with an unpopular answer if you're looking to be serious, which is, yes, I think ultimately, if what you want is a sustainable and meaningful peace, you would have to negotiate with Hamas. Kitsama would not be willing to say that. But because journalists aren't serious about this particular issue, because that cliche of political process and a two-state solution is such an easy fallback, it's basically a form of manifesting, right? There's no material, physical process that's going to make these things happen, but you can just wish it anyway. Um, because that's good enough for journalists who don't take this issue seriously, Kiss Armour isn't being pressed on a hard question. So he could say, oh, ceasefire followed by a two-state solution. You know, I could say I want a ceasefire, you know, followed by a date with Anthony Joshua. That's not going to happen either, you know. Um, not without huge changes on my part and a radical overhaul of uh, the current Israeli government policy. Let's go to our next story. A Catholic church in Gaza sheltering hundreds of Palestinian civilians has come under siege from the IDF. Amongst those inside are family members of British Lib Dem MP Leila Moran. This is how she described the situation to the BBC over the weekend. Well, it's been deteriorating all week. I haven't had an update overnight. And we are now at the point where there is that blackout and the generators have gone. So I'm not sure we're going to get anything, which is terrifying, of course. Um, so it's been getting from bad to worse for a while. We lost a, a family member who desperately needed a hospital just a few weeks ago and, and wasn't able to, to get out. But the escalation really began on Tuesday. Um, there was shooting. They reported seeing white phosphorus. Um, they were obviously terrified. They all went back into sort of the Sunday school rooms in the complex in the Latin church where they are. And uh, they uh, then heard that the janitor had been shot, the bin collector had been shot. And this was from forces who were outside at that stage. Um, then about 48 hours ago, it escalated yet again. There are three generators. Two of them had already stopped working. So already there was dwindling electricity uh, to charge their phones to communicate what was happening to them. Um, but the third uh, caught fire. Um, we understand that that was because soldiers had, had hit it. Uh, they managed to put the fire out. Um, but that was the generator that pumped any water. Already they were drinking contaminated water. They were down to sort of a meal a day. But this was sort of the last straw. So, so the, the last and we how, heard uh, is that now they are without water, without food, and there is a sniper inside the compound. 
um, there's a woman and a her daughter who have been killed. And what's been happening is as they try and leave their rooms, say, to go to the toilet or something, um, there is firing at them. Moran made reference there to a mother and daughter killed by Israeli snipers. That killing has also been confirmed by the Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem. They released this statement. Around noon today, December 16th, 2023, a sniper of the IDF murdered two Christian women inside the Holy Family Parish in Gaza, where the majority of Christian families have taken refuge since the start of the war. Nahida and her daughter Samar were shot and killed as they walked to the sisters' convent. One was killed as she tried to carry the other to safety. Seven more people were shot and wounded as they tried to protect others inside the church compound. No warning was given, no notification was provided. They were shot in cold blood inside the premises of the parish where there are no belligerents being murdered in church. The Patriarchate also said there were three projectiles fired by an Israeli tank and that had hit a convent of the Sisters of Mother Teresa charity. Its generator and fuel supplies were destroyed with a building housing 54 disabled people left uninhabitable. Pope Francis has also condemned the attack, giving this address from the Vatican yesterday. Unarmed civilians are being bombed and shot at, and this has even happened inside the Holy Family Parish Complex, where there are no terrorists but families, children, and sick people with disabilities, nuns. Some say it's terrorism, it's war. Yes, it is war, it is terrorism. It's highly unusual for the Pope to make such an explicit statement, just straightforwardly accusing Israel of acts of terrorism. But the Pope wasn't the only religious leader to condemn Israel's targeting of civilians sheltering in a church. Cardinal of Westminster, Vincent Nichols, has appeared on Sky News, where he was asked about the attack on the church. What explanation could there be? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about the management of soldiers in uniform and the discipline that they should be exercising, but we've seen in a number of ways that discipline has broken down. And these would appear to be just random shootings. So I hope those responsible for it, because this is a structured army, uh, will be held uh, to account for what they've done. You wouldn't go as far as what how the Pope has described the situation. Incredibly strong language um, from the Holy Father saying that it was um, a terrorist attack. Well, I'm not sure the technicalities, frankly. Uh, this is a, the army of a state. So I, I would prefer to say it was a cold-blooded killing. And I, what is so terrible is it's just one example of what seem, would seem to be many, but one example that touches me deeply and one example from which we have some very objective evidence. A cold-blooded killing by the Israeli state. Again, very strong words from a church leader. So what did Israel have to say about that condemnation? On Sky News, Benjamin Netanyahu's senior advisor, Mark Regev, said this. I would reject the, the categorization of, uh, of the words he used, cold-blooded killing. That would indicate a deliberate targeting of civilians. That's something we don't do. We don't shoot people who are going to church to pray. It just doesn't happen. Uh, that's not the way the IDF operates. That's against our rules of engagement. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened, and I would urge people not to jump to conclusions. There have been in the past all sorts of stories put out by Hamas and their supporters accusing Israel of all sorts of terrible deeds, and in the end they've proved to be wrong. And uh, uh, we're talking about a combat area. There's exchanges of fire between Israeli forces and uh, the Hamas terrorists. 
to say that Israel is deliberately targeting Christian worshippers, that's, that's a terrible accusation that is unfounded. Would you acknowledge, Mr. Egev, that the bullets that killed these women were fired by the IDF? I do not know that to be true. Obviously, we're looking into it. Uh, uh, could they have been killed uh, by, by Palestinian terrorists who were shooting at our people indiscriminately? I don't know. Uh, but we've got to be very careful. Uh, there have been countless stories this, since this conflict began where reports out of Gaza, people are 100% sure that Israel did something terrible or this, that or the other. And in the end, it's been proven conclusively that that was not the case. God, they just lie through their teeth, don't they? This idea that the IDF doesn't attack people in religious buildings or around religious buildings. We've seen what happens at the Alaska Mosque. We've seen what's happening at the churches. And we're also struggling to remember examples of reports of Israeli atrocities that were proven not to be the case. Though we could come up with plenty of Israeli claims that turned out to be pretty doubtful. Now, the siege of the church continues across Christmas, with the situation apparently deteriorating quickly. This morning, Leila Moran gave LBC a further update on the situation. The escalation in the last week uh, has been the worst we've seen. Um, on Tuesday, they, um, and these are the reports we're getting from, from inside the church, they, there was firing, they reported uh, the use of phosphorus, um, there was a sniper that killed two women, and this is what the Pope was referring to. Um, they are living in Sunday school rooms. So the complex itself is the church, but then yes. uh, several rooms around a courtyard. And the circumstances of the women dying was they, they were trying to get to the toilet. One was a grandma, one was a mum, middle-aged, and and they were simply trying to go to the toilet and, and they were um, targeted by the sniper. Um, the latest is the last generator is now gone. That was blown up. Uh, that was the one that pumped the water and filtered the water from the well. So there is no water nor food. And um, there are more snipers now that are pointing their guns towards the church and the building opposite. So, I mean, we are we are terrified. They are, of course, terrified. We're getting snatched conversations with them. Um, but that because there's no electricity now, we are, you know, it's 30 seconds, are you still alive kind of conversation. We just don't understand what the IDF are doing. Yesterday, they called the father and said, um, we're going to give you two hours where we're not going to shoot at you, um, which allowed them to be able to go from room to room and check who's got water. They're down to almost nothing. But what that says, just turn that on its head for a moment. If they're going to give them two hours where we're not going to shoot at civilians, that does rather seem to admit that they are shooting at civilians and and hence our, our deep concern for what's happening there. I'm, I'm just not sure they're going to survive the week. Our plea to the Israeli government is just leave them alone. You know, they haven't hurt anybody. They have nothing to do with Hamas, nothing at all. And I, we just do not understand what the Israeli defense forces are, are trying to do here. After that interview with Moran, Nick Ferrari talked to Israeli spokesperson Elon Levy. Mr. Levy, uh, uh, noting you have every right, Israel has every right to defend itself in the, in the face of the October 7th massacre, but when the Pope starts using the language that he's using, as he did yesterday, you're not suggesting he's lying, are you? 
Well, we do not know whether we know that a lot of incorrect information is getting out of the Gaza Strip. And I'll give you an example involving the church. It was in the middle of November when Hamas made up a story of an Israeli airstrike on a hospital. Uh, and this the is Hamas. Uh, I'm sorry to talk no, 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 no. I know. This is a, I know, Nick, this, is a Brit- this is a British MP. I know, who... and I, I, I understand, Nick. But I just want to give an example of some of the misinformation coming out of the Gaza Strip. It was the Dean of St. George's who claimed that that hospital had received a direct airstrike from Israel. It then turned out in the morning the hospital was still standing. And a month later, he said that the hospital was, in fact, fully operational. So we know that there is incorrect information coming out of the Gaza Strip, including sometimes, unfortunately, from religious organizations. And we take very seriously our obligation to protect sensitive sites. Uh, and, of course, to target the Hamas monsters who perpetrated the October 7 massacre. But what is the point made by the British MP that there's this sort of two-hour stay of hostilities or, or two-hour cessation? Why would the IDF say that if it wasn't possible for the other 22 hours of every day? Well, we are talking about intense combat. So Israel is going door-to-door and fighting Hamas terrorists but who have embedded themselves inside civilian areas. Why, Again, why a I'm... church where we are told... Everyone there is a member of the congregation, so we are told. It is not being used by Hamas operatives, and for 22 hours a day, people are under threat of being shot. How would, no, you, how would you justify in, that? Civilians, no, no. Civilians are not under threat of being shot. We have been urging civilians since the start of this war to relocate to the humanitarian zone, which is an area where Hamas has not embedded itself under, school, under schools, homes, and hospitals. We don't want to see people being hurt, and that's why we want them to get out of areas where Hamas is operating. Levy is referring there to the Al-Ali Hospital, where an explosion in October, not November, killed between 100 and 300 people. That's according to US intelligence officials. Some organizations have said a misfired Palestinian missile was to blame, while others say the evidence points to an Israeli airstrike. But neither Israel nor Hamas have yet made all the evidence available to investigators. The IDF has denied any involvement in killings at the church. This is what Cardinal of Westminster, Vincent Nichols, thought of that claim, though. The Israeli Defence Force says it didn't happen, wasn't there? Well, I think that's hard to believe, frankly, because uh, the people in Gaza and the Cardinal Archbishop of Jerusalem, they're not given to tell lies. So you don't believe the Israeli Defence Force? No, I don't. It's just the same playbook, isn't it? A church, a school, a hospital, uh, ash. The IDF keeps seeing Hamas everywhere. At what point is the world going to wake up and say, well, perhaps it's not that Hamas is everywhere, it's that the IDF want to raise Gaza to the ground and it's take with it its infrastructure? I think one of the things I would maybe critique in what you're saying is that you assume that people don't already know that, all right? The British government, the American government are already well aware that the IDF is not operating a proportionate or discriminate military operation. It is plain to see that you've got attacks on civilian infrastructure. That's, of course, what the IDF said from the very beginning. They're going for damage and not precision. They've said outright that because um you know, tunnels may be under, you know, any civilian building, that that would automatically make those buildings combat zones, regardless of whether or not you find tunnels actually going under those buildings, regardless of whether or not you actually find evidence of those buildings being used as command and control centers. This is something which has been perfectly obvious since October, that the IDF are saying um, Hamas is everywhere because 
that gives them the flimsiest of excuses to carry out an operation of wide-scale terrorism, intimidation, violence, annihilation across swathes of the Gazan population. It's always been a pretext. It's about punishing Gaza for what Hamas and um, for what the PIJ did on October 7th. That's always what it's been about. And then, you know, carry out a program of ethnic cleansing, which ultimately benefits the expansionist aims of the Israeli state. So I don't think it's a case of the world waking up. Britain and America know what it is they co-signed. They just think that it's worthwhile because they consider Israel an ally. And while the rest of them, they're only Palestinians, aren't they? Do you think it's interesting that Catholic leaders are getting involved? It's really understandable that Catholic leaders are getting involved. I mean, this is the thing. Um, The Vatican takes it very seriously when one of its churches and its congregation is under attack. That's the job of the Vatican, to show that leadership for the entire Catholic community. I think one of the reasons why this has become such a big story is because you've got this element of the Pope speaking up, who's you know regarded as a widely apolitical figure. And here in the UK, you've got the relatives of a sitting British MP, a relatively senior one, um, caught up in this horrible siege on a church compound. And I think there's a third element as well, which is when you can smear the civilian victims of Israel's bombardment, and invasion of the Gaza Strip as jihadists or potential jihadists because they're Muslim. It's one thing. But when they're Catholic, which for people who are looking at the world through a racist lens will go, oh, it means you've got something more, you know, in common with us in the West because you're Christian, because you're part of, you know, what gets lumped together as a Judeo-Christian heritage. They're seen as more worthy victims. Now, what's happening is awful. It is awful. It should be investigated as a war crime. I also think it's the case that were this happening to a mosque, some of the international response would be a lot more muted in Western countries. Let's go on to our next story. Michelle Moan is a Tory baroness. She was appointed to the House of Lords by former Prime Minister David Cameron in 2015. Moan founded the Ultimo lingerie brand, but her more recent business exploits have been a source of ongoing scandal. In 2022, the National Crime Agency raided her Isle of Wight home as part of an investigation into Moan's links to a firm called PPE Med Pro. So, what events led to this criminal investigation? While the firm had been awarded some £200 million by the government to supply PPE in 2020 at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, those contracts included the provision of surgical gowns and face masks. Through her lawyers, Michelle Moan repeatedly denied any connection to PPE MedPro. But in 2021, it was revealed she had personally recommended PPE MedPro to government ministers. Those ministers included Michael Gove. There was a further revelation in 2022. Moan had recommended the company to ministers five days before it even existed because Michelle Moan is blessed with prophecy powers. Incredible. And The Guardian also uncovered a further twist to the tale last year. A trust of which Moan and her children were the sole beneficiaries received £29 million from PPE Med Pro's profits. 
So things were looking pretty bleak for Michelle Moan and her husband, Douglas Barrowman, who was also implicated in the scandal. No surprise then that Moan decided to take a break from the House of Lords, with her lawyers saying she was doing so, quote, in order to clear her name of the allegations that have been unjustly levelled against her. Just a reminder, one of those unjust allegations was that she was in any way connected to PPE MedPro. Mona and her husband have now launched their comeback tour and they kicked it off with an interview on the BBC's Coonsberg on Sunday. When it became public that you were connected to the company, you both denied it. Why? I wasn't trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes and I regret and I'm sorry for not saying straight out, yes, I am involved because DHSC, the NHS, Um, the Cabinet Office, they all knew of my involvement. But I didn't want the press intrusion for my family. My family have gone through hell with the media over, you know, my career. And I didn't want another big hoo-ha in the press and my family to be involved in it. But it was more than an error, though. Your lawyers repeatedly told journalists who wanted to report the truth Mm -hmm. that you were not connected. Lawyers for you, Doug, said repeatedly, you had no role or function in PPE MedPro. You've been telling us today how hard you worked Mm -hmm. to get the contracts and make the contracts happen. Over a period of months, you said again and again Mm -hmm. that you had no connection. And your lawyers even said to some journalists it would be defamatory, they'd be libeling you if they told the truth. You know, this just wasn't a slip up. Yeah. You didn't tell the truth for months on I think on if end. we were to say of anything that we have done, we've done a lot of good, but if we were to say anything that we have done, that we are sorry for, and that's not to, that's, we should have told the press straight up, straight away, nothing to hide. Everyone knew of an involvement and we should have said to them of our involvement. And we were just trying to not have all the front covers of the pages again for my family. And I was just protecting my family. And again, I'm sorry for that, but I wasn't trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. Well, you certainly didn't get those front covers, did you, Michelle? And maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me if you're lying to the press, you are trying to pull the wool over the entire eyes of the entire public or, you know, the Ultimo underwear even. Now... What about those claims that Moan personally benefited from PPE MedPro profits? She still maintains that she hasn't, technically. You've said repeatedly you didn't financially benefit from this deal. Except it's just a matter of time of when you benefit. The trust is in your and your children's name. That is a no. financial no, that's benefit. Not, true. Can we no, not right now. Well, th- well, this is exactly what I'm trying to clarify. Yeah. Well, let's clarify. The, the trust is settled in my name. Mm-hmm. It's my income. It's taxed on my tax return, and I choose to put it in trust for the benefit of not just Michelle's kids, but my own kids as well. Ultimately, one day, because I'm not going to be on the planet forever, um, someone's going to benefit from a lifetime in business and experience. Ultimately, if I'm married to Michelle, and ultimately I'm going to generate profits, then ultimately Michelle, in some shape or form, is going to indirectly benefit. And actually, if I die one day in the future, She's going to directly benefit. As you've just said, Doug, your family is benefiting. You will benefit. As a family, you are benefiting from those tens of millions of pounds. Whether it's today or in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, 
for most people watching this, you did a deal with the government to provide more than £200 million worth of PPE, and your family has made tens of millions of pounds no, from not that. My, my family hasn't, Laura, made tens of millions of pounds. God forbid if my husband decides to divorce me after the show <laughs> and <laughs> no, takes an me out of his letter of wishes, I take my husband out of my will. If we, God forbid, get divorced, I don't benefit. It's my husband's money. It's his money. It's not my money. And it's not my children's money. It's not my money, but I just did everything possible within my power to lobby so that the person I married to would get the money. And I definitely did it altruistically, just out of love for them. It's also not their money, is it? It's our money. It's the taxpayer's money. And they've got tens of millions of pounds of taxpayers' money sitting in a trust that they're talking about. Oh, it's just profits. It's just, it's just what happens when you're in business. You just get profits. I go outside and I get some profits. I sell some dodgy PPE that doesn't actually work, that the government's trying to sue me because it doesn't work for. And I get some profits. But don't worry, Michelle Moan's not directly benefiting because it's in a trust. Ugh. Not only do Moan and Barrowman say they've done nothing wrong, they also claim that they're far from the villains. They're actually the victims in this saga. This is what Moan had to say about the government. The reason why Doug and I, my husband and I, are sitting here is because we've been their scapegoats, goats, and they have destroyed our lives for over two years because it suited them, the narrative suits them to attack us the way they have done. At the end of the day, the masks were delivered. They were high quality masks at the best prices. The gowns were delivered. There was no issue with the gowns. They passed them, they paid for them, they congratulated them on the quality as well. I think they wanted to hold us out as the Bonnie and Clyde of PPE. It suited the narrative. They have uh, had a one-way one -way ticket to push that narrative because we have not fought back in two years. The Bonnie and Clyde of PPE. With a PR team like that, who needs enemies? It's worth noting the government is currently suing PPE MedPro for £120 million because they claim that those gowns, you know, those gowns that they said were in perfect condition were actually unusable. Uh, and this, you know, I like to keep the pandemic memories a bit repressed, but something's coming back to me. It's about other unusable PPE. Ash, was this the only dodgy COVID contract awarded during the pandemic? Sorry, I'm still stuck on uh, the Bonnie and Clyde of PPE. 23 Bonnie and Clyde. All I need in this life of sin is me and my VIP procurement lane. Me. Which doesn't scan as well. <laughs> doesn't scan as well. But this does um, bring me round to the myriad dodgy COVID contracts which were offered through the VIP procurement lane, which was later ruled unlawful uh, in a court. So the VIP procurement lane was basically a way to try and fast track COVID services and fast track the contracts for COVID services. And this could be for anything from, um, you know, rapid testing to PPE. How this actually worked out is that if you happen to have the WhatsApp number of a minister and you were, I don't know, a friend of the Conservative Party or a high value donor, you could, with very little oversight, be granted a contract worth millions of pounds of taxpayer money for services which in some time, which in some um, cases never actually were carried out. So there's an example of a VIP lane procurement 
where two Tory party donors, I believe their names were Mohammed, uh, Mustafa Mohammed and Mohammed Amseri, both high value donors to the Conservative Party, personally text uh, Matt Hancock, um, personally have a phone a conversation with Lord Bethel. They get given contracts worth millions of pounds for rapid testing. Now, for at least one of these contracts, the services were never actually delivered, but they're still reimbursed to the tune of over thirty-five million pounds by the Department of Health for mobilisation costs. Now, that is not bad for a day of not very much work. You also, I think, quite um, notoriously had the case of Alex Bourne, who was awarded a contract, again, to the tune of millions of pounds. This wasn't directly through the NHS. This was He was subtracted by Alpha Laboratories, who had a contract with the NHS. This was a hugely lucrative contract. And, oh no, it turns out that he's the landlord of Matt Hancock's local pub, the pub which Matt Hancock had a framed picture of in his office. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with having a fast track process for COVID contracts. I'm not even saying that the overpayment, which was, by the way, to the tune of 80%, so nearly a billion pounds being spent in uh, VIP lane contracts, which was an inflated price and a reflection of how fast these contracts were spent through. I'm not even saying that all of these things were in themselves really, really bad. It was a pandemic. There needed to be a quick response. There would probably be some waste and some overpayment. I can make my peace with that. What I can't make my peace with is the fact that this was basically a slush fund. It was a financial opportunity for people who had networked with the Conservative Party sufficiently to be able to send a text and then work out if they were capable of delivering the goods later. And in many cases, they didn't. It was a daylight robbery of the taxpayer. And Michelle Moan certainly wasn't alone in profiting from the Treasury when really she shouldn't. Just thinking, what pub would I have in my office on my wall? <laughs> Let's stay tuned for that reveal. There's been some fallout, why wouldn't there be, from that interview with Michelle Moan. This was Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's reaction to it. This whole situation is subject to an ongoing criminal investigation, but also the government is taking action, legal action against the company involved. So there's a limit to what I can say, other than to say we take all these things incredibly seriously. And that's why so the government's taking legal action. And because there's a criminal investigation ongoing, I can't comment any further. Do you think it's OK, though, for a, a former Conservative peer to lie about these things and to admit about lying? I say, what I'd say is the government takes these things incredibly seriously, which is why they're in the pursuing legal action against the company concerned in these matters. Where is Sunak there? On an airfield? You know, Rishi Sunak recently intervened to make sure that his uh, VIP helicopter contract wasn't cancelled. He really does love aviation. Now, Michelle Moan hit back at Sunak with this. What is Rishi Sunak talking about? I was honest with the Cabinet Office, the government and the NHS in my dealings with them. They all knew about my involvement from the very beginning. And later, obviously rattled, Moan added this. Does at Rishi Sunak stand to profit from the Moderna COVID vaccine during the pandemic? I suggest that he might want to take that incredibly seriously before pointing fingers to save his own skin. Well, you do know what they say about people in glass houses. They shouldn't award dodgy COVID contracts to political allies. Allegedly. Let's go to the next story. 
since being booted out of the Home Office, Suella Braverman has been having a rum time of it. Her name has become a shorthand for politicians resorting to hateful and often incomprehensible rhetoric. So she's probably quite pleased to be asked to attend a ceremony to christen a small boat in Fareham, the constituency that she represents. My name is Captain John Guy, and I'm beyond delighted to welcome our local MP and much missed former Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, KCMP. It is testament to Suella's dedication as a local MP that she has taken the time to christen the small boat. With her huge engine, sleek exterior, but strong, firm, and steady tiller, she is just perfect. And that's just Suella. <laughs> <laughs> Although it may just be a small boat, it will have a big impact on the local maritime community. Suella was loving that, and she even gave a little speech. John, Fairham Fishing, it's a real honour, a real honour to, to be here, to join your fantastic team, to pay tribute to all of you for your confidence in Fairham. Good luck to the Betty Warren. My honour to launch her. Unfortunately, the decking was pulled swiftly from under her feet. You are also the last leg's dick of the year! Congrats. By popular votes. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That's fantastic. Thank you. I'm not sure what that is all about. No. <laughs> it's been a big um, spoof. Yeah. That's going to go good. viral now. And go viral it did. The Last Leg is a Channel 4 comedy show and they conducted their annual Dick of the Year Awards via X, formerly Twitter. Suella won out over illustrious competition including Elon Musk and her former boss Rishi Sunak. She joins previous winners such as Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. I'm not actually sure whether Putin ever got to attend his ceremony in person though. A Braveman ally told the Daily Mail the segment could have been, quote, a bit funnier. Ash, I need to know what you think. Is Suella Braverman your Dick of the Year? So I think choosing a dick of the year is very delicate business because, of course, there are people who've committed worse crimes against humanity than Suella mm -hmm. Braverman, even just in recent months. But I think if you're going to be like, yeah, Benjamin Netanyahu, dick of the year, that's a bit um, minimizing. Do you know what I mean? So I think that whoever your dick of the year is kind of has to have a vein of pettiness that runs through them, as well as being someone who has, I think, committed egregious ills in public life. So Suella Braverman, yes, the things that she's done have had an absolutely detrimental impact on people's lives. I'm thinking here of her handling of asylum seekers. That's something which has had, you know, an actual body count, right? People died in Manston. Uh, just recently you had someone commit suicide on the Bibby Stockholm. But the thing which makes her not just someone who has done evil in politics, but a dick, I think you have to go and examine her letter to Rishi Sunak after she was sacked, because that was a real, you can't fire me, I quit moment. And by the way, I'm going to spend all this time pissing inside the tent, which I was already doing, but now I'm going to do it worse. And that is the bit which makes her a dick and not merely someone who makes the lives of the most vulnerable people in society in absolute living misery because she wants the approval of the Daily Telegraph. For my money, my dick of the year is the uh, think tank uh, director who is always, always, always the contender and never the Tory candidate. 
little Easter egg for you there. Thank you, Ash, for joining me tonight. I wonder who you could have had in mind. <laughs> and thanks all of you for tuning in. We'll see you tomorrow for another show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.